Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So when I was 13, I'm not going to do the math for you, it was just over a decade ago, uh, my family went to visit the Field of Dreams in Dyersville. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but there is absolutely nothing around it at all. It's kind of cool, though, to see a baseball diamond cut out of a cornfield, just like in the movie. And if you go, you can join a pickup baseball game that's happening. So we all grabbed our gloves and ran out onto the field. And like 10 minutes in, this guy hit a sky-high pop-up right toward my brother, who was playing second base. And he called everybody off. He said, I got it, I got it, I got it. And then it hit him straight in the face. I don't think his glove touched it at all. He was bleeding all over. I'll never forget it. He had like a dangling blood clot right out of his nose. You're welcome for that word picture. And I think a good big brother in that moment would have gone over and comforted him and been like, hey, you're going to be all right, buddy. But what I said was, whew, looks like you did not got it, huh? (laughs) What he did got, it turned out, was a broken nose, which if I can be honest with you guys, put a real damper on the day. Thanks a lot, James. But I was just remembering that last week and wondering how many of us kind of live life like it's a baseball game. No matter how big the challenges get or how high that ball goes in the air, we're saying, I got it. I got it. I got it. I can handle this by myself. I'm not worried. I don't need anybody else's help. I'll do it alone. I think probably most of us in this room live like that more frequently than we want to admit. It's hard not to in the middle of a culture that tells us self-reliance is a virtue and needing other people is a sign of weakness. So we just try to do everything by ourselves. We get that box from Ikea and we're like, I'm going to handle it. I can do this. And we look at a wordless Swedish cartoon and nine hours and a box of duct tape later, like, I hope that bookshelf didn't need like five of the screws that came with it. And it's supposed to be leaning left. That's the European style, I'm pretty sure. But we'd rather do that than admit we need help. Like, I got it is the American motto, and it'd be great if it worked. But too often what it gives us is broken noses and crooked bookshelves. And we know that. It doesn't work the way we wanted it to work, which costs us in a couple important ways. I mean, first and foremost, we're left off in a worse spot than we would have been if we'd relied on other people's help from the beginning. But also, and more critically, I I think it leaves us feeling isolated and alone. The Census Bureau released a new report that says loneliness has now reached epidemic proportions in the United States of America. It had been on the rise for years, exponentially so, ironically enough, after the constant connection offered by cell phones and social media. But we've now reached a point where two-thirds, nearly, of adults in the United States of America report regularly feeling lonely. Lori Santos is a researcher and professor at Yale, and she recently argued that given what we know about the holistic benefits of relational connection to human beings, loneliness is now a greater public health threat in the United States than even obesity or diabetes. It's literally sucking the life out of us, and we know it. We know it. My guess is I'm not the only person in the room right now who's felt like the heavy weight of this. 
it's an endless struggle for me. I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud to confess this. Just like I'm not proud of any lie, I'm regularly tempted to believe. But I think I owe you guys the honesty and vulnerability of admitting all the places where I fall short and I'm a fellow struggler along the journey. I struggle repeatedly with this overwhelming sense of existential isolation. I know a lot of leaders who do. I know a lot of people who do. It's just a spiritual battle for me against a voice in my head that says, you are alone. You are not worthy of any of these people being with you. You are certainly not worthy of God being for you. You're alone. Why wouldn't you be? Why shouldn't you be? Whatever burdens you're bearing, you better figure out how to carry them by yourself. And the thing is, not only is that untrue, it's wildly unfair not just to God, but to all the people in my life who are with me despite the fact that I'm unworthy. And I know that, but sometimes I struggle to, like, to know it. I just feel alone. And my guess is that every single one of you knows what that's like. It's difficult to live in 21st century America without feeling isolated sometimes. And without convincing ourselves that isolation is normal, it's, it's fine, we should just suck it up and deal and be self-reliant because that's what successful people are supposed to do. But that mindset is dangerous, and I think it's particularly perilous. And the consequences are especially significant when it comes to our faith, when we decide that we can just follow Jesus all by ourselves. Maybe go to church occasionally or even regularly, but we don't really need to plug into a group where where we have to be vulnerable, where we we know other people and are known by them. We don't have to give and and serve with our time and our money. We don't don't owe anybody anything. We're just going to do it by ourselves. This morning, we're finishing off this series we've been in for the last month called Want to Get Away, where we've been talking about some of the stuff in our daily lives we desperately want to get away from and talking about how to build lives we don't need to escape. And what I want us to see today, in the middle of a culture that will constantly pull us in the opposite direction, is that part of chasing the dreams God has placed in our souls part of living into the lives we desperately long for, part of avoiding the soul-sucking poison of loneliness is finding our people. If we're gonna build lives we don't need to get away from, we have to build our lives together. Relationships with one another matter, and that's not easy. People are dysfunctional, communities are deficient, the church is defective, in so many ways compared to what it should be. But despite all that, the truth is we will never do life the way we were designed by the designer to do it. We will never have the future generating impact we were created by the creator to have. We'll never maximize the gifts we've been given by God if we try to do this thing alone. Because we're hardwired for connection. It's meant to be a source of life for us. A few years ago, I was in Davenport at my parents' house, and I was trying to figure out where I was going to watch some football games because they didn't have cable and hadn't in a while, at least to the best of my knowledge. And then my mom exclaimed, well, I finally got fed up and called Mediacom. I was like, to what, to get cable? And she said, no, no, we've been paying for cable for like a year, but we never had it. All we've ever gotten is like the four basic channels. So I called and complained, and the lady said, well, is it hooked up to the TV? And I said, yes, it's hooked up to the TV. She said, okay, grab the remote and hit the source button and make sure it's on cable. We have all the channels. We've had them for a while. Like, this is my parents in a nutshell. No one in our family is good at technology, but they are particularly bad. 
And it's fascinating to me. They spent nearly a year going through the motions of having cable. They were checking the right boxes. Hook it up to the TV. Check. Pay Mediacom. Check. But none of that mattered at all until it got tuned into the right source. You guys, when we think we can check off the boxes of life or check off the boxes of faith all by ourselves, we are missing out on an important source. We will always settle for less when we settle for self-reliance. Like God could not be more clear about that. There's no way to read the story in Scripture, like from beginning to end, the history of God and people without coming to this conclusion. Like with Israel in the Old Testament and in the church in the New Testament, God has always been calling a people to himself to go be a light in the darkness. There's no way to take his book seriously without coming to the conclusion that there is no journey to God that does not also lead us to each other. And there may be journeys that start alone, all on your own, but they never lead to any place other than community of deep connection with other people where you know and are known. And I'm convinced if we're going to walk out of here this morning and step into the lives our souls long for, we got to get this right. It makes a huge difference. It changes our stories. Because every one of us has dreams inside our soul of the world as it should be, the world as we long for it to be. And we have an idea of the role God might be asking us to play in making that happen. But if we filter those dreams through the lens of self-reliance our culture hands us, we end up assuming that we got to go do it all alone. We convince ourselves meaning, accomplishment, and greatness are kind of individual feats. And to be fair, I think we have that idea because of the way we've been taught history. From the time we're young, we're told to read history like it's just the story of great individuals. Like Alexander the Great and Caesar and Napoleon and Abraham Lincoln were just made from a different mold. And the human story hinges on their unique greatness. And we forget that they had families that shaped them and entire empires that stood behind them and great generals that fought for them, but all of them did. Every last one of them. I don't care who you are, no human being on this planet has ever done anything that mattered and lasted all by themselves. Never. And neither will we. And one of my favorite things is when the Bible kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes look, when it peels back the curtain and shows us what God is doing that no one can see to drive the story forward and make things happen. And the Caesar, or the Abraham Lincoln of the Bible, the guy outside of Jesus who had the most significant life and made the biggest impact is probably David. And from the very first time we read about David to the times we read about him hundreds and even thousands of years after his death, it feels like he was cut from a different cloth of greatness. Like He was a warrior and a poet, a musician and a king. And especially if you're churchy, you grew up in and around church, it's easy to think of David as the one who walked out alone to face the giant, who, who went solo and slayed Goliath, and who chased after God and single-handedly built this kingdom that God had been promising his people. But if we actually look what's going on behind the curtain and dig into David's story, what we figure out is that David did almost none of that alone. If you have a Bible or a Bible handy, 
Will you open up to First Chronicles chapter 12? If you hit Kings, keep going. If you hit Second Chronicles, go back. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the words on the screen. And if you need one or your kids do, we have a whole bunch of them at the Next Steps table out in the lobby. They are our gift to you. Please take one before you go. But this is what's going on in First Chronicles chapter 12. The prophet Samuel had anointed David to be the next king over Israel, but he wasn't king yet. Saul was still the king. And at one point, Saul had kind of turned his back on God, and God took the kingship away from his family line, but that did not make Saul happy at all. In fact, he was so furious, he decided he was going to hunt David down and murder him. And that's where we're at in 1 Chronicles 12. David is in this really weird space. He's on the run for his life, wondering if God is going to protect him. And he's also wondering if God is ever going to deliver what God had promised him. This is what we read in verse 22. Day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. These are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him as the Lord had said. And the next 13 verses list off hundreds of thousands of people who came to join David's side. This is incredibly powerful. Like so often in our lives, much like David's life, we get this picture of the future. We think we know what God wants for us and even what God's promised us and we want him to give it to us right now, to hand it to us on a silver platter immediately, but he doesn't tend to work that way. Because he's got a whole different thing going. See, it's always a journey to get from where we are to where God wants us, and it's never a journey we can take alone. I'm going to repeat that. It's always a journey to get from where we are to where God wants us, and it's never a journey we can take alone. People matter along the way. It's challenging to become who God wants you to be, but he built us in such a way that you will never rise to that challenge all by yourself. Even David couldn't do it. A whole bunch of folks showed up and followed him, right? And we need to understand the fullness of the situation. The king is trying to murder David. And so showing up to join David's team was not the safe play by any stretch of the imagination. The safest thing for all those hundreds of thousands of people to do would have been to line up behind Saul. He had the army and all the political power in their nation behind him. He was the present, but God had said David is the future. And there's a tension there. You can always play it safe and hold on to the past alone, but you can never build the future alone. So I think we all have to wrestle with the same question, live in the same tension the Israelites did. Do we play it safe? Do we resist the movement of God and hold back, live in the past and rely on ourselves? Or do we boldly decide we are going to roll with those who are chasing the vision God has of what is to come? Be aware, though, if you choose option two, if you decide to build the future with God alongside his people, there's a cost to that. Every one of those people who joined David's side knew that it might cost them everything. It might even cost them their very lives, but they came because they were committed to him, they were committed to God, and they were committed to the picture of the future God had for their nation. In particular, there was this group that we call the mighty men of David. Their name in Hebrew is the Gibberim. He's the bravest of the brave. 
There was Eleazar who fought so valiantly for so long on a freezing cold day that his sword froze to his hand. There was Shammah who made a stand in a field of lentils while the entire army retreated around him, looked at the enemy and said, I will not be moved and gave them such a taste for blood that they turned and ran. There was Benaiah who went down into a pit and killed a lion on a snowy day. In all, the Gibberim were 37. They were generals, commanders of tens of thousands who committed their lives to David. There were three in particular who went everywhere every time he asked them whom he trusted with his life, and they were willing to give up anything and everything for him, for God, and for the future they believed God had called them to see to it that happened in their world. Like the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament, a huge chunk of the Old Testament is this narrative of a kingdom David built, but you guys, there was never a kingdom David built alone. That kingdom didn't exist. Like if David had treated life like a game of baseball and said, I got it, I got it, I got it, we would have dead David, not King David. But instead... This kingdom was established because a whole bunch of people were willing to do something we really struggle to do in the United States of America. It's this word that starts with C. It's kind of a dirty word. I'm going to ask us all to read it together. If you don't like saying naughty words, you can just keep it to yourself. But we'll throw it on the screen, and on the count of three, we're going to read it together, those of us who are willing. You ready? One, two, three. Commit. Mm-hmm. We had some 20-somethings in the room. We're just kind of... like. We don't like it. We got to protect our autonomy. We struggle. I don't even know if in this culture we know how to relationally commit to one another. We see it in the way we do school, in the way we do jobs, in the way we do relationships, in the way we do marriage, even the whole like cohabitating for a really long time before we get married thing. That is not a disease because we have all these wicked people like, oh, they're awful sinners. This is a symptom of the way we've been taught to think. That is dangerous, so we got to protect our freedom for as long as we possibly can. That's what all of us have been told, and all of us, all of us have lived that way. It's interesting, though, to think about what the people around us will commit to. Like, I think we live in a culture where people will commit to causes more than they will to communities. I'm committed to justice. I'm committed to to homelessness. We'll commit to ideas and causes, but not to people. And don't get me wrong, there are some great causes to commit yourself to, but here's why I think that's our tendency. Causes don't hold us accountable. It doesn't actually cost anything to commit to a cause other than to say, I'm really passionate about this and I believe in it. And then you can drop in and drop out whenever it's convenient for you without ever paying a price or without ever being held accountable. Committing to a community, though, that's a whole different story. Like The Gibberim committed themselves, their futures, their families, and their lives to David, to their country, and most importantly, to God. And I wonder how many of us are willing to live like that. How many of us would make that style of a commitment? There's a cost to that. There's a cost to committing to community. There's a cost next week to committing to community. It's reached Des Moines. Instead of holding our normal services, we're spreading out around the city to serve because we are convinced that the love of Jesus ought to be tangible and bring flourishing to people. But there's a difference between being committed to that cause and being committed to this community. Like Most of the people in this room love reached Des Moines. 
Not all of us, I know that, but most of us are proud to be a part of a church that's actively trying to go live out the gospel in the city. Most of us are grateful to be a part of a community that gives significantly and sacrificially, and we like it that this church does reach Des Moines. But I know there are a handful of us in that boat in this room right now who, at least before I talked about it this morning, were thinking, man, that's great, it's cool, but next week, I'm probably just going to take the week off. Like, I... It's summer, the kids are exhausted, we got a whole bunch of house projects to do, like I, I hope it goes well, but I'm just, I'm probably going to skip next week. Why the gap? Because there's a difference between committing to a cause and committing to a community. It costs nothing to commit to the cause and say, I love it that Revision does reach Des Moines. But committing yourself to the people in this room means you got to show up and serve with us because we need you. And we do, by the way, need you. We need you. And also, you need us. That's the flip side of the cost of commitment. It's also a deep personal investment because here's the reality of the world. You will never be who you were made to be alone. You'll always settle for something less than the love you were meant to give and receive and experience for the purpose you were meant to live out if you try to chase that purpose by yourself. If you pretend and delude yourself into believing that you're an island who doesn't need anybody else, people are an essential, not an obstacle, if we're going to live the way God created us to live. And it's this thing Jesus invented called the church is where we come together and commit our lives and our love to one another. The church is not a building. It's not a place we go. I think for a lot of us, that's, that's the first thought that pops into our minds when we hear the word church. And if that's the first thought that pops into your mind, it's, it's not your fault. Unless you're German, then it's your fault. You and the ugly, angry-sounding language of your ancestors. Because kircha is this word that means building, and that's where we get church. But the Greek word, we translate church in the New Testament is ekklesia. That means gathering. That means community. The church is not a place. It's a people gathering together to commit their lives to one another. In Christ, we are loved, and loved people do life with people. That's one of our core values here at Revision Church. Loved people do life with people, and the church is about committing to do life with people, not because we have a common story, not because we have a common background, not because we have a common skin color, not because we have a common socioeconomic or educational reality, but because we have a common mission to make the good news of the gospel known in a dark world that is desperately yearning to breathe the oxygen of God's love, to help people meet Jesus and follow him fully. And when we decide that mission is worth giving everything to, it changes the game and it changes the way we relate to one another. God does something really cool. Peter describes it like this in 2 Peter 4, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9. And I really love this verse because like Peter's real name was Cephas. And then Jesus had a tendency to give people nicknames. I don't know why he liked doing it, but he met Peter, he met Cephas and he's like, eh, Peter. It means rock man, right? That's, that's the nickname that Jesus gave him. And so Peter describes this whole community thing using an imagery of rocks. I think because that's the name Jesus gave him. He writes, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, 
are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like once you were not a people, but now. Peter's like something happens in us when we decide we're gonna go all in for this Jesus thing. You have always been a person, but now we are a people. We're a people being built together into a community. And this community is always gonna be imperfect because we're flawed. Like I'll lead the way in that. I'm a, I'm a flawed leader with a gigantic list of things I cannot do and a very short list of things I'm gifted at. But despite the fact that none of us are perfect and none of us have everything that all the rest of us need, we commit to one another and God builds us together into something more than we could ever be on our own. We're being built together into a spiritual house. I mean, think about it, like a, a single brick doesn't do a, a lot of good unless you're trying to assault someone right? But a brick house is mighty, mighty. Letting it all hang out. It's all downhill after you quote the Commodores. That's as good as I'm getting today. But seriously, Jesus is doing a thing in and through us as we commit our lives to one another. And there is no other way of following him than doing it in community. Like when God calls you, he doesn't call you to yourself. And he doesn't even call you only to himself, he calls you to his people. He calls us to one another. And so I think two big questions I want us to ask ourselves this morning as we, we think about this, as we continue to try to build lives we don't need to get away from are, are who is with you and who are you with? Like who's with you and who are you with? I'll answer one of those for you. I'm with you. I am with you guys. I've told this story plenty of times before, but when I first felt like God was talking at my heart to plant a church, I prayed, please no, do not make me do this. And he did not answer that one, so I said, all right, fine, but please don't send me alone. Like, if you're going to make me do this, do not send me alone. And our staff, I prayed for every single one of them, specifically by name, that God would send them to do this alongside me. And there are a number of you sitting in here this morning, I prayed for before Revision Church even existed, that you would come and join this thing and do this with me. And all of you, like, honestly, I prayed for you before this church existed. I just didn't know your names and your faces yet. But I have been praying for you for years, and you're so much better and cooler than I could have possibly imagined. Like, I'm incredibly grateful I love you guys. I love this church, and I'm, I'm with you. Like, I desperately want to be one of your gibberim. Like, my life goal is just to be a mighty warrior. God sends to help you maximize the vision he has for your life. I am with you. I'm all in. But who else? Like, who's with you, and who are you with? 
if we will give up on the myth of self-sufficiency, if we will quit chasing this stupid idea that we can do it on our own and we're just fine, what we'll find is that life is so much better. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell writes about this town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto and this thing that became known as the Rosetto Effect. In the middle of the 20th century, a whole bunch of doctors went to study this, this mining town because no one was dying early there, and everyone around them was dying early. Their mortality rate was less than half of all the surrounding towns. And like, why? They went 10 years without a man under 65 having a heart attack. And what the researchers discovered was that it wasn't because they were healthy. It wasn't like in Rosetta, we eat salads. No, 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 no. They worked in the same quarries that made everyone else sick, and they were a bunch of Italian immigrants. So they rolled their own stogies, drank way too much wine, and loved eating a diet of fried foods, meatballs, and sausages. They should have been at risk for tons of heart disease. And eventually, after a decade, the only significant medical conclusion that anyone could come to was the fact that Rosetta was a tight-knit community where everybody knew everybody. Multiple generations lived in the same homes. At night, they would sit on front porches rather than back decks. And in that town, everybody was known by everybody, and everyone knew everyone else. And a whole bunch of doctors decided the only explanation for the fact that this community, which should be at terribly high risk for heart disease, has avoided it almost entirely, is that they are doing life together. And that relieves so much stress from the human soul that it is literally cutting their death rate in half. We are built to do this thing together. And so my challenge to all of you this week is to stop treating life like it's a baseball game. Please stop saying, I got it, I got it, I got it, before life smacks you in the face because you don't got it. I challenge you to lean in and live into the story and purpose God has for you by choosing to do life along his people or alongside his people. I know it's difficult and it's vulnerable, but we are better together. All of us. We're so much better together. And my practical step is please sign up for Reach Des Moines. Do it. Sign up to serve. I know you may not feel like it. You may not even love the organizations we're partnering with next week, but I'm not asking you to commit to the cause. I'm asking you to commit to the community. Because I really believe that as you give your life away to the other people in this room and as they give their life away to you, God will do incredible thing in and through us. I think you need us and we need you. And the city needs us, all of us, all in on loving each other and loving the people we crash into in a way that points them toward Jesus. Because something happens when we give our lives away to one another and then we open them up to a hurting world. God moves. He writes a better story for the people around us and he creates a better future for us. You want to know what your future looks like? I'll tell you, I can see it. Like prophetic word right now. It looks like your people. There's nothing more important than the choices you make and the people you choose. And if you will choose to give your life away, what you'll find is a beauty in life that's so incredible, you don't need to get away from your life. you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of each other. Lord, we live in a culture that's going to tell us to go it alone, to say, I got it, I got it, I got it. And too many of us too often have been smacked in the face by the reality that we can't do it alone. And yet, there's a constant temptation to try to be self-sufficient, a constant temptation.